Well, thank you once again. It's a, it's a real joy and privilege to be here, uh, just to be part of that worship. Uh, you know, you want to write home to people, but you can't bottle the worship. You'd love to be able to say, hey, have a go at that. Uh, so wonderful to be led so beautifully into God's presence and to feel our desire to be led and responsiveness. And then uh, what David had to say to us a moment ago, I found my heart absolutely stirred. Um, just hearing Dick Iverson, an amazing man of God, uh, I had the privilege of meeting him uh, decades ago, I guess, uh, in Portland, Oregon, uh, before they built their most recent phenomenal building. Uh, that was decades ago, dear, dear man of God. And then more recently, standing with him in uh, northern England, a town called Huddersfield, as they, uh, he was there for, I think, the opening of another massive building there where uh, their European work is uh, based, and uh, just a great, great servant of God. And then to hear these great names, uh, just one after another, coming out from this nation, certainly Ern Baxter, I can only agree with Dick Iverson, one of the greatest preachers I've ever heard, privilege of hearing him in our major conferences in the UK. And uh, it's wonderful to just link back into these great heroes of the past and realize that uh, God's plan and purpose unfolding. We stand on the shoulders of great, great people. And uh, to hear David say what he has, I found my heart really stirred. I felt he was imparting faith to us, not just rattling off some names. It was a real sense of God uh, speaking to us. So I hope and I trust you've been as encouraged as I have. I love these meetings. I love being here uh, in the presence of God with you. Do pray I can be helpful to you in the Word. I want to speak to you this morning from 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, just a few verses I'll read to you. It's hardly worth turning up. I'll just concentrate on one verse in a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Lord God, we love the privilege of worshipping you. Father, we feel ourselves shut in with you as you draw out from our hearts worship, as you show something of your majesty to us as our hearts rise in your presence. Father, thank you for these incredible privileges. And Lord, we just pray once again because of your promise that you will give the Spirit to those who ask. Father, we ask in Jesus' name for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, to grant us a spirit of revelation. Lord, that you do a supernatural work in us as we focus on your word together, we ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, the Apostle Paul is obviously one of the great figures of history, not just of church history, really, but of global history, a phenomenal person. And uh, it's always a privilege, isn't it, to think about the possibility of taking aside uh, uh, a historic figure. I'm just reading a biography of Abraham Lincoln, and I'm just fascinated as I read his story. I remember reading a biography of Churchill. And think, one of these great men, and say, now, just tell me, what makes you tick? <laughs> what, what is it in your heart? And, and it's almost here in this verse, in verse 5, we've got something of that sort of thing with the Apostle Paul. It's like taking the Apostle Paul aside and saying, well, tell us, what's the key? And, and that's the kind of verse you've got here in verse 5, the goal of our instruction. This is what I'm after. This is what I'm going for. The goal of our instruction is love, from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. And I want to just open that verse up together with you this morning. Paul has a goal to his instruction. It's very important that uh, we are in church life where there's frequent preaching, there's frequent teaching, part of our being together, our church service includes teaching. We are hopefully open the Bible, we're being taught, we're being instructed. But it's important to know that Paul didn't do that simply to keep the religious machinery going. He had a goal. There was a goal to his instruction. He was after something. He had an objective. A fairly recent convert said to my son Joel in the church in Brighton recently, just joined the church, he said, as he heard him preach week by week, he said, you're after something, aren't you? You've got a goal. You're not just religious. You're not just preaching. There's an objective to what you're doing. And Paul had an objective. He was not merely preaching. It would have been exciting to hear the Apostle Paul. It's wonderful to read church history, especially of revivals and hearing of the tens of thousands that you would gather to hear George Whitfield reading about what he did when he came across to the States. And it says crowds of people. And the guy said, I came over the hill. And as I came over the hill, I saw people pouring in their carts and their horses and running and running just to hear uh, this preacher. And you can sometimes go to hear a preacher because, well, he's amazing. He's an amazing preacher. And it said about some of the leading actors, Garrick said, if only I could say, oh, like uh, Whitfield did. There's something about the guy. And it says that uh, Herod went to hear John the Baptist, not because he had any intention of doing what he said, but there was a fascination. It says he used to listen to him, used to go and hear him, put him in prison. That's how, that's how irrelevant it was. He's, he, he hated what he said, but he loved the fascination of hearing him. And, and God doesn't want us to be like that. He doesn't want us to have a fascination for hearing because there's a goal. There's an objective. There's something we're trying to accomplish through the preaching. There's something we're after. There's a, there's a goal. Paul had a very clear objective in teaching. He was after something. And God said to Ezekiel, he said, they listen to you as to one who plays an instrument well. And that's fascinating. I love hearing a great band. I love hearing someone who plays an instrument well. Yeah, it can fascinate you. It can excite you. You think, wow, the way he just moved from there to there, that terrific uh, kind of guitar solo or that amazing skill. Uh, you know, you think, boy, that's enjoyable. God says, they listen to you, Ezekiel, like one who plays an instrument well or like one who sings a love song well. What's that? What's it like? Well, it's lovely to hear love songs. 
great. I was a great Sinatra fan. <laughs> I can enjoy Elton John. I love, love, his song, love songs sung well. What does that do to you? Well, it gives you a passing emotion. It stirs your heart. can draw a tear to the eye. It doesn't accomplish anything. You can say, oh, come on, hear my preachers. really moves you. Moves you to what? Changes what? Accomplishes what? Paul wouldn't have anything to do with that. Paul was far more pragmatic. A friend of mine went to hear the great David Pawson in England. And uh, David Pawson certainly, uh, over the years, has been one of the great teachers in our country and gathered a big church uh, and uh, a friend of mine went to hear him, and, and he was very smitten by what he said. He was kind of going out thinking, oh, I want to seek God and in view of what he said. And just ahead of him were two people walking out who were obviously regulars there. And one said to the other, hey, he was good this morning, wasn't he? And the person replied, not as good as last week. And you see, you're missing the point. Paul says, I've got a goal to my instruction. It's not just how good was it. What is God accomplishing? Jesus came. He saw a tree. He says, where's the fruit on it? There is none. Chop it down. Chop it? You can't do that. Chop it down. It's not producing anything. Jesus had a pragmatism. Sometimes we keep the machinery going. What's it producing? Sometimes there has to be a ruthlessness, beloved. I've sometimes spoken at big conferences in the UK and people say, oh, it's a wonderful conference. And I thought, well, it's okay. They said, we're going back to our church now. It's so bad. You think, well, what are you playing at? They said, we're, pray- we're praying for our vicar to get saved. <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? What, what, what are you playing at? Jesus said, if there's no fruit, chop it down. That, now, that sounds a bit heartless. And they, they said, you can't just do it. He said, well, dig it round for a year. If it doesn't produce anything, chop it. It's taking up space. So there's a kind of ruthlessness. There's a kind of pragmatism. Paul's saying, I've got a goal. I'm not just keeping the religious machinery going. And for us who are pastors, we should be saying, well, why am I teaching this? What am I after? What am I hoping to produce? Now I'm going to start maybe a series of teachings. Now, why am I starting it? Well, we've got to have a Sunday and I'm supposed to preach. No, no, no. Why would I take that? Well, what is my goal and objective? What I hope to accomplish once I've gone through this six months of teaching. It's important that we have a goal to our instruction. That's what Paul says. I have a goal to my instruction. The second thing to notice is this. He has a method to obtain his goal. The method is instruction. I know what I'm after, and the way I'm going to get there is through instruction. In other words, he's going to teach the Word. Some have, some have not bothered so much with teaching. They said, well, God's here. Isn't it wonderful? We really felt such a, woo, isn't it lovely? Woo. But what did you learn? Well, I don't know really, but whoa, did you? Whoa, that was wonderful. And, uh, and Paul says, no, I've got a method to obtain what I'm after. And my method is instruction. And he says later, I taught you day and night with tears. I know in the early days of the move of the Spirit in the UK, early days of a rediscovery of grace, and I was mixing with people in what were called the new churches, and there were some who really became very indifferent to the Bible. And they would say things like this, the early Christians didn't carry about a big black book with them, which is true. And so they kind of said, no, they just lived from their spirit. That's how it was. They just lived from the spirit. They didn't have a big black Bible. 
you know, for centuries, for seasons, you know, there was no a New Testament canon. There was, you know, they, they, so they, they said, no, no, we don't. Come on. All this Bible stuff. It's legalism, they used to say. I thought, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay, they didn't carry big Bibles in the first century, but Paul said, I taught you day and night with tears. I taught you day and night. He writes to Timothy here saying, don't let people teach nonsense. That's that first few verses I read out to you. You've got to really bring truth because Jesus said this, you will know the truth and the truth will free you. There is a truth. There's a, a form of sound doctrine. Paul says this. He says, it's, it, you've been committed to it. He doesn't even say it's, it's been committed to you. It's like the word that's used in that verse, it's almost like you've been poured into its shape. But there, it's almost like uh, there's, there's, there's a container and God's poured you into truth and truth is getting in. We need truth. Truth sets us free. And, and it's at our peril that we abandon truth, that we don't take seriously the Word of God. It's at our peril that we say, well, we're just following the Spirit now. Come on, look what God's doing here. People are so excited. I mean, wonderful. Now, we, we want as much wonderful sense of God's presence as possible. But truth is of paramount significance. And Paul, in all his epistles, is fighting for truth to be safeguarded. Truth as against old traditions... Jesus said this, you have a way, a good way of honoring tradition more than you do the Word of God. So some old traditions, Jeremiah was told you've got to tear down as well as build up. Some old things that are not really the truth. We've got to be radical where things are not true. And also, then you get new fads. I've been around long enough to see fads that come in and the church goes, oh, that's exciting. And two years later, we're not talking about it anymore. I thought, no, it's not actually very biblical. That's not to be snooty, it's just to be biblical, to be safe. So Paul says he's got a method to obtain the goal. You shall know the truth. Jesus said, take heed how you listen. Whoever has, more should be given to them. The hearing of truth is so important. So he's got a method to obtain his goal, which is teaching the Word of God. It's of huge significance. It's no small thing. It's not a 10-minute homily. It's building in truth, leading people to love truth, feed on truth, be inspired by truth. So Paul has a goal. He has a method to obtain his goal, which is teaching the Word. So what is his goal? Okay, so the goal of our instruction, he begins to just spell out in a few phrases. And actually, it's quite an unexpected one when you think of the majesty and the significance of the man. We might say, well, our goal is, and you could say, well, what is your vision? There's people these days always trying to say, well, say your, what is your vision statement? Which I always think is a bit of a joke, really, because the whole Bible, you know. But anyway, we're trying to encapsulate. Uh, and here, here, Paul is saying, right, here's an encapsulation. It may not be very much like what we would have said, actually. We might have what we would think, no, much vaster than that. But actually, here's Paul speaking. So, hey, here's Paul. So let's hear. What is his goal? The goal of our instruction is, first of all, love. We're going to look at each phrase. The goal is love. That's what I'm after. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? The goal, what I'm trying to produce, accomplish, love. You see, people have different goals. People are sometimes shaped by these goals. So some would have a goal of orthodoxy. 
That may be what's number one. When people meet you, they feel, this guy's really orthodox. Hallelujah. All these things are good that I'm going to mention, but some people, that is their goal. That is their ultimate. The goal is orthodoxy. The goal is to be absolutely clear and right. I remember as a young pastor in the first church I was pastoring, and I used to stand at the door as people came in, just greeting people as they came in. And I remember a guy came straight past me, didn't greet me actually, just walked straight past me, and we had a book table. And he went straight to the book table. And he looked at the books, and he found a book, and he found a page, and he came to me. He said, you call yourself an evangelical? I said, yeah, I do. He said, what are you doing with this book on your table? Have you seen what it says on this page and this line? And I said, good morning. <laughs> See, this dear, this dear man, orthodoxy. He didn't care if he met us. He didn't care in a relational... And orthodoxy, that's it. The thing is orthodoxy. I saw on a, uh, a tweet recently. I'm into tweeting. And uh, a guy called Burke Parsons, who, who works with R.C. Sproul, and, and he put something like this, if I have all my theology straight, but have not love, I don't have all my theology straight. <laughs> and, and the truth, see, Paul says, my goal is love, is orthodoxy, wasn't his primary, see, we want to be orthodox, if we're not, we're going to be all over the place. But he said, my goal is love. My great objective is love. My primary goal is love. Not orthodoxy as such. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, but not orthodoxy as such. Some of them, their, their, their goal is radicalism. It's just like, oh, that's, that's rubbish. No, this is weird. I remember hearing a guy speak once. He said, I used to believe this, and we used to do this. It's rubbish. And then he said, then we did this, and that's rubbish. And then he said, then we've moved on to this, and it's rubbish. And now this is what we're saying. And I thought, next year you'll be saying. (laughs) See, radical, radical, we used to, but now. And there can be an excitement about the radical, a sense of here we're cutting edge. You know, we've turned our back on, come on, this is the latest thing. Radical can be that some fun people, that's, their, that's what makes them tick. Radical. Orthodox, radical, sometimes charismatic life is the goal. The goal. That's the whole deal. The goal. I was in Sydney, Australia a while ago and saw a friend I used to meet once when I was in Durban in, Australia, in South Africa. A beautiful guy, a fun guy. And the first time I ever saw him, he was playing in a band. He was playing a flute. And he had a balloon with helium gas in it. Up there. So the balloon's going up like this. And he's, he's, he's a great songwriter. He's a great guy. I like him a lot. But in these meetings now, he's just, wow, it's great. The spirit comes. And, you know, usually we're all on the floor at the end. <laughs> it's great. And that's uh, how it happens every week. He said, people come to us. They come from Hillsongs. They come from the other churches. They just come to be refreshed with us, where God's presence is. I said, well, how's the work growing? He said, well, we don't seem to grow much. People come in to drink. And it was kind of, yeah, so charismatic. That was his goal. And not noticing, actually, we don't seem to be building a church, actually. Because, well, it's just the phenomena that have fascinated us. That had become his goal. The fascination of phenomena. 
charismatic life. We had 10 prophecies. What did God say? can't remember, but 10 prophecies. <laughs> Just fascination with it. Numerical growth. How's it going? Oh, we're, it's number now. How's your church going? Oh, we've added another. How's your work going? Oh, children's work. How's the work going? Oh, we've made this much money. How's the work going? Oh, we've done this, we've done... And you can hear little hints here and there, little things that say, that. what is it makes us tick? And all sorts of things which are very good things. Nearly everything I'm mentioning in its place is excellent. But Paul is saying, my goal is love. I find that fascinating, interesting, and hopeful. He, he said, my goal, my objective is love. That's what I'm after. That's what I want. It's so great to be with the pastors and leaders of this event in the run-up to the days here. They're praying out, God, let people come into a context of love. Let them come into a, a community. Let them find something of God's grace. Even praying for the people who work here that they'll encounter a loving community. Beloved, it's a high, high goal. It can sound, oh, love. No, this is Paul. Paul's saying the goal of our instruction is love. That's the number one, a community of love. Jesus said this, the greatest commandment. They said, what's the great commandment? He said, this is the greatest commandment. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your strength. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says in Galatians 5, the whole law is fulfilled in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love, absolutely fundamental at the center. Let's just open up a little bit more. First of all, loving God primarily. The first commandment is you love the Lord. Beloved, we love because he first loved us. It's a wonderful old hymn that says this, God is love. It is not by effort. Thou shalt ere that love return. Tis the consciousness he loves thee. This shall cause thy heart to burn. And so we instruct. What do we instruct? We're instructing to help people understand God loves you. See, many Christians don't know that. They don't, honestly, they know it theoretically, but the psalmist said this, this I know, God is for me. That's why I emphasize grace. That's why we kicked off the whole conference with a grace message because so many believers are saying, have I done enough? Am I okay? Lord, I'm trying hard. Are you pleased with me yet? Oh God, if only. I'm trying harder. Please, I'm trying. I will do some more. I'm working at it. And there's no rest. (laughs) There's no sense. Hey, he delights in you. He delights in you. He delights in you. Get a revelation. God delights in you. It's just. It's breathtaking. God loves me. And when we enter into worship, you see, sometimes you get people, we don't have it here, thank God. You have worship leaders who are bullying you. Come on, let's worship. Sing as though you really mean it. You think, what? Sing as though you really mean it? If you don't really mean it, please don't do it. And so possible, come on, let's lift the roof up. Come on, come on. Boom, boom. Come on. The people don't, you've got to instruct them about love. That worship is, come on, can, can we, when we start worshiping? Because yeah. it's a heart issue. And you have a revelation of how much God loves us. And that comes through instruction. It comes through, like we did last night, saying, look, this is what the Bible teaches. This is why. This is, the, this is how accepted. You're accepted in the beloved. It's a done deal. You're, and so your love begins, oh, Father, you could love me like that? So the goal of our instruction 
is to teach people, yeah, how much God loves us. And then, as the Scripture says, we love because He first loved us. The revelation of His love comes to us. So we get to know the incredible wonder of God's unchanging love. And then as we have our time of worship, it's not having the music before the preach, especially when the songs are full of truth. Could spend a series on that, couldn't we? When the songs are full of truth. And you're beginning to just dwell on what we're singing. And your heart opens up again and again and again. See, when I was saved, I went to the local church where the pastor was a fabulous, wonderful Bible teacher. The worship was not. It was singing four hymns. That was preliminaries. We sang the thing, put the book down, noticed him, now let's hear him. And we've learned, no, 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 in the worship, our hearts are warm because we love him. Because he's taught us to love him. And the Holy Spirit's witnessing in our hearts. So the goal, the goal, we're after producing a community of love that comes first of all from this awareness. We are beloved of God. Therefore, we're good at giving away mercy because we've received mercy. We're good at dwelling in community because, well, we're loving him together. Without that experiential awareness of the love of God, church going can be very formal. And for me, when I first started going to church, when I was first saved, I was amazed how formal church life was. There was no kind of community because, well, somehow we weren't being drawn into this goal of Paul's to build a church full of love. That was his goal, a loving community that we love God. We love him because he's first loved us. He's justified us. He's adopted us into his family. We utterly belong. It's wonderful to teach the love of God. And then, of course, loving one another. Loving one another. And, and we've got to remember that Bible word, agape, is a divine love. It's rooted back into an Old Testament word, the Hebrew word chesed, which is a very difficult word to translate. And, and it and it's translated several different ways in our Bibles. Steadfast love, tender mercies, loving kindness. All these are different phrases you'll find throughout the Old Testament. They're just translating one word, chesed. But the root of the word, a man called Norman Snaith wrote a great book on Old Testament words and their meanings. He said the root of the word is covenant love. Covenant love. God's looking for us to experience covenant love. We're brought into covenant. It's not casual. It's not, oh, we just go to the same place. And God, we see, we live in a generation where love is a word that's used a lot but misunderstood totally. So love is a feeling. With songs, love is a feeling. Marriages fall apart because what we thought love was a feeling. And I really felt for you. And I felt good about it for a little while. And then I spotted this girl at the office who I kind of like. And actually, please release me. Let me go. I don't love you anymore. I must be true to my heart because I actually fancy her now. Because she makes me feel good. Because love is making me feel good, isn't it? Love is falling in love with someone. It makes me feel good. So love is what... It's for me, it makes me feel good. It's kind of, ooh, I feel good about you. Can we get married? I feel good about you. And we've, we've thought of, and the Bible says chesed, which is covenant love, which is how God loves us. And you look at the Old Testament, you look at the love of God for Israel. You see God's love revealed in books like Hosea, 
when God sees them in their adultery. And he says to a prophet, marry that adulterous woman. So that this man goes through this agony. And he's somehow knowing the heart of God. And that God, God doesn't say, put off then. The story of Jonah doesn't say, God said to Jonah, no. And Jonah said, no, I'm going the other way. And it doesn't say, the next verse says, oh God, send for Amos. <laughs> the, the whole book of Jonah is how God's covenant love with his servant pursuing him persuading him, drawing him. He says to Hosea, through Hosea, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? My soul is torn apart. The, the God, God's love is not just some pleasure thing. It is a covenant. It's, it's commitment. It's commitment. You can bless your wife a great deal if you take her by the shoulders and look in her eyes and say, I'll never leave you. I'll never leave you. Well, that's taken away your bargaining position. You took away your bargaining position when you got married and said, forsaking all others, I give myself to you. See, people bargaining, they're playing. They're saying, well, I'll hold back my love. I'll withdraw my affection. I'll, I'll... No, no, no. The Bible wants us to know a different kind of love altogether. That speaks of, no, I love you. I, I commit myself to you. Even when it's painful, when you feel, well, I'm not quite sure where the love is at the moment. And marriages go through such times. And it's fascinating. I've just been reading through Colossians the last few mornings. You get this great truth. Great truth about what God has done in Christ. Next teaching, husbands, love your wives. Go straight there. Wives, submit to your husbands. You think, hey, what, what is this? Well, God is interested in how we work out love in our home, in our family. He's looking to us to express love thoroughly. And then it says back in Micah, there are three things the Lord requires of you, O man. Do justly, love chesed, and walk humbly with your God. That verse is regarded, it's translated mercy. Love mercy. It's the same word, chesed. This is what the Lord requires of you, O man. Do justly, love covenant love, and walk humbly with God. Love working out your covenant love. But I don't know, I don't seem to like her anymore. She's critical. She's harsh with me. She doesn't bother to look nice for me. Love working out your covenant. Believe God. Love. God's, God's love is not casual stuff. It's not come today and gone tomorrow. And God, to Paul says, I want to build a community of Bible kind of love. Love that sticks with people. Love that sticks in marriage, love that sticks in parent and child, the prodigal son. That story came down out of heaven. Charles Dickens says the story of the prodigal son is the greatest short story ever written. It came down out of heaven. Jesus told us the story of the prodigal, of a father who keeps loving. Loving a son who squanders everything, and then loving a son who's so stuck up. It goes out to him as well. The prodigal father, as someone's called him, goes out to both. It's a love that stays. So Paul is saying, I, I, want to build, I want to build a community that's not like this kind of community. We're in a community, you don't mend anything, you throw it away and get another one. Don't mend it, I'll throw her away, get another one. And God wants a covenant community that's enjoying 
love. And it's going to take instruction. The goal of our instruction is, is getting to feel the love of God, getting to know His, his covenant love, experiencing His kindness. And then because you've been forgiven much, you start forgiving. You start giving away mercy to the person who offended you. It may be to the partner who's hurting you. You keep giving love. It's amazing. It's supernatural. It's something only God can do, and He can do it in us. So He produces a community on, on fragmented planet Earth that just looks completely different. God's alternative community who walk in love. So Paul said, my goal is love. That's what I'm after. And that has to be modeled at leadership level. So, I know when I went to, I went to Bible college, uh, I won't get into that, it's not my greatest idea of things to do, but I went to Bible college, and when I, when I, I was there, you were instructed as a pastor, don't make friends with your people. That was the instruction, don't make friends with your people. If you want to make a friend, find a pastor in another town. I, what? Huh? That was the, you know, don't, don't get close to people. Because it can mess you up. You think, what, what does the Bible say? And then I've heard people more recently, and I've heard a very famous guy who I, I have a great affection for, actually. He said, he said to us as a group of elders, he said, uh, don't make friends with your elders, your co-elders. So it's harder to fire them if you do. <laughs> you say it. He said, we're going to take the world. You've got to be able to be ruthless. got to be able to sack. Hire, fire. You think, hire and fire? What will where is that then? <laughs> Paul writing to Timothy, my dear, true child in the faith, my staff member. What's your CV? Huh? Mm, yeah. We'll put you on for No, thank you. Hey, what are you talking about? Oh, oh, well, this is just the leadership. Oh, it's just the leadership. So the leadership models hire and fire, and we say to the church, love one another. <laughs> Boy, how... how the atmosphere of the New Testament church is beautiful. It's breathtaking. It's, it's full of love. It's full of names. Look at, I mean, Romans, that most classic theological statement. You look at the last chapter. Give my love to. He's never even been to Rome. All these names of people. The church, the New Testament church is full of love. It's full of relationship. He says, I'm sending you Timothy, my beloved son. It's wonderful. It's a huge joy for me to see Jeremy here, if I may say this, at a personal note, whom I've known since he was a young lad, and to feel fatherly love and to see the fruit of his ministry and see that reproduced in all kinds of relationships because we're building a community of relationships. And Bible language is my dear son. It's not my staff member who we've recently hired and may fire next week. That is not giving leadership guidance to what God's after. So, beloved, what we're trying to produce, it may take longer. It may not look so sharp. But it's biblical and it's long-lasting. And it will build for, that, for, for God's kingdom purpose. And it makes you vulnerable. Love makes you vulnerable. So the Apostle Paul... The Corinthian church made him vulnerable. I mean, he says of the Corinthian church, you are the proof of my apostleship. How about that? 
Paul, I thought you were an apostle. You produced this. Yeah, you're the proof of my apostleship. Oh, man alive. Forget them. Corinth. I ne- no, I went there once. Yeah, I think I remember them. No, you can't shake them off. See, biblical love, you can't shake them off. You can't walk away. That's the whole point, brother. You don't walk away. Whatever we're talking about, family, we're talking about church, we're trying to produce a community that the world, when it glimpses it, says, boy, I've never seen people like this. My loneliness, my out on me, left me with the kids. He's gone. People are all that, they're just being abandoned everywhere. People are being abandoned. 50% of kids being born in the world today, it's true in the States, it's true in Europe, I don't know the Canadian figures, 50% or over children being born outside of wedlock. 50%, half the kids. They don't know who their father is. They're battling through. Girls are wondering, do I give this boy? my virginity? Will he like me if I don't? Who's telling me that? I don't know what the rules are. Walk away if I don't. Then he does walk away because you did. And then you're, well, what happened? What's the point? Well, see, people, beloved, they're in a mess. They don't understand life. And we're trying to build a completely different community that's rooted in covenant love. It's a wonderful, Paul's call is wonderful. I've not seen it on many... Ch- what, is the, what is our goal? Well, it's to do this and this and this. Paul's saying, we want to produce love. <laughs> love to God, love to one another, love that pays the price. Beloved sons. That's how Paul writes to people. My beloved sons. My beloved children in the faith. Then loving God, loving one another, loving the world. What is evangelism? It's loving people. Loving people. I found some of the most wonderful evangelists, uh, they're not necessarily platform guys, they just, they keep talking to everybody. There's, there's a love that just flows out. Loving the world. Loving our enemies, the great Christian triumph. Not counting their sins against us. Loving enemies giving away mercy. I love the story of Joseph, don't you? Joseph, to me, is just the most wonderful example of a guy so sinned against. And yet his perspective is so different. He could say to them, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. He's looking at God. You know, sometimes you can see yourself in a situation, you can say, I'm in this situation because of him. It's because of their sin. And Joseph could have said, it's because of their sin. But he never has that attitude. He sees God bigger than that. I'm in this situation because God was doing something. God sent him ahead. You get these lovely phrases in the Psalms. God sent him ahead. But what happened? Well, his brothers just treated him terribly. God sent him ahead. See, learning to forgive is also to do with learning who is sovereign around here. And riding the storms and riding the the waves that come against you sometimes. There's a God that's over us in all this. And then when his sons, or his brothers rather, come to him in Egypt, he doesn't say to Pharaoh, you want to know these guys, the way they treated me. No, no, he covers them, he shields them. He's not a trace of any kind of word to Pharaoh how bad they were, just the opposite. Incredible mercy. 
the mercy of God. And you, you hear wonderful stories. You read missionary biographies, other Christian biographies, guys in prison, and they win their jailers because of their just incredible mercy towards them. That's the Christian victory. And it has to do with Jesus and what he did. God wants a community of love. Love in all its fullness. From a pure heart, the next phrase. Purity just means without mixture. Purity isn't kind of something you find on a snowy mountaintop. Pure air. No, pure just means it's not mixed. That's just pure water. There's nothing in there. It's just what you see is what you get. That's pure. God wants us to love from a pure heart, not having ulterior motives, not having hidden meanings, not saying things meaning this, saying meaning something else. It's just what you see is what you get. Pure. That's it. From a pure heart. And then the next phrase I want to spend a little while with is a good conscience. I don't think we often, we don't take conscience seriously enough. We don't understand how it works. But Paul is saying, this is my goal. If I can produce a community who love and who keep a good conscience, that's phenomenal. In fact, imagine every person in a church has all got a good conscience. Let's all say, let's say, everyone with a good conscience all stand. And everybody stood. You think, wow. Paul said when he was uh, standing before the authorities, he said in Acts 23.1, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God until this day. You think, wow. I have lived my life with a perfectly clear conscience before God to this day. Wow. Wow. The goal of my instruction is to produce people with a good conscience. It's not to work my way through Deuteronomy. Though you may work your way through Deuteronomy with that goal in view. You may work your way through all manner of scriptures, but your goal is to produce this in the people, a people who know how to live with a good conscience. And scriptures will help us to bring people to that place. But we want that. We don't want a lot of people say, well, let's worship God. And they begin to raise their hands and Satan says to them, hey, God wants clean hands. Look what you've been doing with yours. Oh, yeah, well, bless the Lord, oh my soul. See, worship is affected because Satan is the accuser of the brothers who accuses the brothers and the sisters day and night. So if he's got you in your conscience, you're in trouble. So God wants us to learn how to live with a good conscience, which means we obey conscience. All right, let's look at it step by step. We obey conscience. Conscience, <laughs> I was, I was, it's like a red light. It's not, it's not reasonable, all right? The conscience is not reasonable. It's intuitive. You suddenly know, I shouldn't have said that. It doesn't explain the logic. You just know. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that with that tone of voice. You just know. You think, I shouldn't have looked there. You just know. Your conscience, intuitively, you know. That's how the conscience works. It's unreasonable. And if we don't obey it, we're in trouble. I was was in Italy. A guy called Giovanni, a lovely pastor actually out there, dim. And he's driving me along. And he drove straight through the red light. I mean, just straight through it. And this is like 20 years ago. He just drove straight through the red light. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he smiled. He said, 
it is expressing an opinion. <laughs> and I, I was back there about three years ago, and, and, and he did exactly the same. <laughs> and he lives to tell the tale. I mean, the thing is this, you've got to be very careful when you ignore red lights. When you, you, don't, you don't reason with conscience. See, what people do this, they reason with it. They say, he's a Christian, and he does it. He's a Christian. And a highly prominent preacher from the States who was traveling around in South Africa, he was confronted by someone because the way this guy was talking and conducting himself with the pastor's daughter. And it, it really was not, not pleasant. And they confronted him. And his answer was, God knows, when you're on the road, you all need a little bit of tender, loving care. So his just conscience was completely seared. And he knew other people. Ah, pastor on the road, come on. God knows. On the platform, he's electric. At home, he's disgusting. On the road, well, come on. Conscience is gone. Not living by a good conscience. Paul says, I want to produce a people who've got a good conscience. They obey conscience. Paul says, some have made shipwreck because they did not have a good conscience. They made shipwreck. That's terrible. Tra- shipwreck's tragedy. It's been one that's just been in the news this last week. Lives lost. I, I saw the, the movie Titanic again on the box recently, on television recently, and uh, I, I read something, an article a week, a year ago, and it said that, uh, I didn't know this, that the captain of the Titanic had been warned in advance, there is ice, that it's dangerous, be careful. And he was just about to retire, and he was in this magnificent new ship, and with the potential of breaking the Atlantic speed record, that was, that was eating him up. And so he ignored the warnings and made shipwreck. See, it's sad when people mess up. It's tragic when, you see, sometimes Satan doesn't really care. We often think, oh, young people, when you've got teenagers together, speak to them about these sexual things and so on, speak to them. You know, Satan doesn't care a lot. You get a guy who's got some visible, prominent position, take him out. The devastation is massive. So there's a prominent leader. He did what? Oh, he committed adultery. He did what? Whole flocks ruined. The reputation of the gospel. And my friend C.J. Mahaney said, when news of Jimmy Swaggart, which you may or may not remember now, goes back ages, prominent television personality preacher and then found to be desperately immoral. He said, when that went public, he said, I found a new attitude to preachers in the nation. He said, just going through emigration, just saying I'm a preacher, he said, used to be more esteemed. He said, the knock-on effect of someone in a position who gets taken out is massive. Massive. So we've got to walk with a good conscience. And you don't reason with conscience. You don't say, well, he's a believer, he does it. High visible preacher. I mean, he, come on, he does it. That's, that's, that's reasoning, but the conscience doesn't reason. The conscience is intuitive. You know. You don't reason with it. You don't say, well, she started the argument. 
Or he does it, and he's a Christian. He's, a, he's been a Christian longer than I do. He does it. That's reasoning with conscience. You don't reason with conscience. You obey it. She started the argument. She knows my phone number. She wants to call me. That's, 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 not, no, that's not what God wants. God wants us to obey conscience, to do things that are not blame-shifting, not, not saying, I couldn't help it. See, the conscience wouldn't speak to you if you couldn't help it. <laughs> the conscience is pretty accurate. Let's just say one last thing about conscience. Conscience is pretty accurate, but it's, it needs to be informed by the Bible. So conscience is intuitive. It just needs to submit to biblical truth because sometimes your conscience needs to be realigned with the Bible's truth. And sometimes you can have a conscience about a thing that the Bible doesn't speak of. So we saw about it in grace last night when we were preaching. And, the, and, and I said how the, how the Hebrews would come into Galatia and say, oh, well, if, you are, if you're a real child of God now, you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the Sabbath. You could get a conscience about something that's erroneous. So you have to line up with truth. And you must line up your conscience with truth. So if I can use an illustration like, like drinking alcohol, say. You say, well, I became a Christian. I stopped drinking alcohol. I wouldn't even touch the stuff because I felt, no, that's wrong. And then you see another Christian, and he does. He drinks. You think, wow, he's a Christian. He drinks. And he says, come on, have a drink with me. I, uh, and you step into his liberty because he's free, but you're not actually. You think, well, he's free. I'll try it. And, well, and in your conscience, you see, what you've got to do is this. You've got to say, well, wait a minute, have I got to rethink this? So you come back to your Bible. So what does the Bible say? Okay, so Jesus drank wine. Okay, so here's this about wine. Okay, okay, I have now persuaded from the Scripture that this is okay. Now my conscience lines up. I don't go into somebody else's liberty. Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's just because just they're free doesn't make me free. I may feel, no, I'm, I know, I'm just not to go anywhere near that. So I need, and if I'm going to step into your freedom, I need the Scripture to show me. Then I say, oh, okay, oh, it's okay, it's in the Word, okay. Now I can step into this. So conscience, so there are all sorts of things that get confused. You could be in Northern Ireland and do a kind deed to a Catholic and feel a bad conscience about it afterwards. So your conscience needs to be re-instructed. Because you can be raised from a very early childhood to hate things you shouldn't hate. And it's into your conscience now. So conscience has to line up with truth. It stays intuitive, but we need to do that. And then the last thing about conscience is this. The blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience. That's what the Bible says. It says that the blood of bulls and goats that couldn't cleanse the conscience, but the blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience. So what have I got to do? I've got to be able to trust the blood of Christ. And so this is important, beloved, because some people have got what the Bible calls a weak conscience. They feel guilty all the time. They've got a weak conscience. So it's like the preacher, you know, he's preaching some storming word, and he's really thundering home the message, and he stands at the door, and as people are out, some frail, sweet lady says, oh, thank you for your word. It really challenged me. And you feel like saying, I wasn't challenging you. It was the blighter behind you I was after. <laughs> but, but some people are so vulnerable. It's like every word, oh, that's me. Oh, that's me. Oh, that's me. And, and what they've got is a, a weak 
conscience. They just feel all the time. They're vulnerable. And some people can cultivate that even and feel that's a good Christian. No, that's not good. Paul says, I serve God with a clear conscience. How do you do that? No. Well, you see, he knows what it is. If he confesses his sin, the blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience. And that means this. So, so, you know, you're a mom and you really lost it with your kids and you just went for them. And you think the next day, oh, God, that was terrible. I, I spoke to them like I was a pagan. And you come to God and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm supposed to be a Christian mum, and I, I'm just, I'm sorry, I've, I failed you. And then you walk away thinking, I'm such a failure. I'm such a failure. Such a fa-. Instead of walking away, saying, thank you, Jesus. Your blood cleanses my conscience. The blood of Jesus cleanses your conscience. If you don't know how to live in a good conscience, because when you do sin, you come quickly to God. And say to God, Lord, I, I repent. I'm sorry if I confess my sin. You're faithful and just. See, if you don't receive mercy, if you don't take mercy, you just keep walking away with it. You've still got a bad conscience. Satan's absolutely tying you in knots. So you have to obey conscience. You have to obey it. Don't argue with it. Don't blame shift. Obey it. Learn to live with a good conscience. If you offend your conscience, come quickly to God. Confess your sin. Let the blood of Jesus cleanse your conscience. We learn to live with a good conscience. You, Paul says, this is my goal. This is what I want to produce. A people who love God, who love one another, who love the lost, who love their enemies. They've got a pure heart, a good conscience, a church with a good conscience. Let's lift holy hands. Amen. A church is not scared to be called saints. See, people, people want to change their theology so we're all sinners, really. But Paul doesn't write to to the Philippians, to the sinners in Philippi, (laughs) with the deacons and the elders. A lot of people want to say that. Serious theologians want to say that. We're all sinners, really. Paul didn't write to any sinners, to the saints who are in Philippi. So what's saints? We we argue with our Roman Catholics. You don't have to be dead. You don't have to be in a glass window. (laughs) We're all saints. But what does it mean, holy ones? That's what it means, holy ones. So if we said on you know, Sunday morning, okay, holy ones, let's all stand. You go, well, who's going to stand? Holy ones. <laughs> but that's, that's the language of the Bible. We're holy ones. We're set apart for God. We were nothing. God called us out of darkness into his light. Live as children of the light. You're the light of the world. Believe it, beloved. Don't say, well, I'm just a sinner. We have to live with a good conscience. Why? Because we're brilliant? Because the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience. And as we grow in grace, we're learning more and more to be obedient to every prompting. And then the last phrase, as we draw to a close here quickly, and a sincere faith. I mean, we ought to spend a whole session on this, but we can't. We'll spend a few moments on it. If I, Paul's saying, if I can produce a people of faith, watch out world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's huge. Faith is massive. Faith is saying, I believe God. And so sometimes people say, well, I haven't got much faith. No, that's not good enough. It's saying, "I I don't trust God. 
See, we always take faith and put it in a glass case. Faith. No, faith, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones apparently answered R.T. Kendall. R.T. Kendall said, I asked Lloyd-Jones, what is faith? And the answer was, believe in God. wants us to believe him, to trust him. And in fact, he blesses faith almost in an inordinate way. He puts such a high value on faith. Because the root of the human problem is unbelief. That's the root. See, people say the root of sin is selfishness. I actually don't think the root of sin is selfishness. I think the root of sin is unbelief. See, Gandhi wasn't very selfish. We didn't know God. The root of sin, see, that's what happened at the beginning when Satan came to Adam and Eve and said, you can't believe God. That's the bottom line. He's holding out against you. And he said effectively this, eat what I'll give you and you'll be as God. You can choose what's right and wrong. You're in charge. Because at the moment, you've got to believe him. And he says, you're not allowed to do this. And who knows? He's holding out. So the root of sin is not believing God. And so they believed the lie. And they bought into, well, we'll be as gods then. And the root of the problem is, see, I want to come to my conclusion. So if fear's coming, I'm going to fear it. And God says, don't fear. Yeah, but you don't know my problem. Don't fear. Believe me. Trust me. Put your confidence in me. Grow in faith. Grow in faith. Grow in trust in God being faithful and true and reliable. So we want to produce a people who are growing in faith. I envy churches where there's a very high faith level in the church. All sorts of things start happening. Where there's a corporate faith. Where a church has grown in faith. Where, where sometimes it works. God spoke to us years ago about our building project that we were going for. And we're talking about millions of pounds. Millions of pounds? If there's a rich person in this church, I haven't met them. And you're talking about millions of pounds. And God spoke to us prophetically and said, I will use this thing as an anvil to develop, to hammer out faith in you. And we started asking God, give us 20,000. Give us 50,000. Give us 100,000. Give us 200,000. And as a church, we grew in faith. We grew in faith. We grew in faith. And, And then when we finished the building program, we felt, hey, I think God is saying to us, you can do this anyway. So, okay, the building program's finished. Let's give that much away every year now. And in the mercy of God, a people who believed we could do this had grown. I'd love to see that in the whole realm of healing. I'd love to see that in all kinds of realms. That we're faith, we're, we expect. See, so for so many of us, it's like, whew, would God heal? It's a big deal. You know, you pray, I don't suppose you feel any better, do you? <laughs> oh, I took a guy with me last two weeks ago. I prayed for someone, and he's, that was his next line. Don't suppose you feel better. I said, man, you're a real good companion. <laughs> We want to produce a community who believe God. Believe God when things go bad. That's why we need to sing songs like that when we're worshipping. We're going to trust in God. We're going to trust in Jesus. When the road's tough and difficult, I'm going to keep trusting. This is the victory that overcomes setbacks, heartaches, 
People like Nehemiah, they built, they built, they built against huge discouragement. But it's like you couldn't discourage the guy. Should a man like I run away? You think, man alive, you're pretty full of yourself. No, he wasn't. He trusted God. We've got to see faith in the churches. We've got to find that faith, that young people growing up amongst us understand we believe God here. Faith is the bottom line. Sometimes faith is severely tested, isn't it? Hugely tested. There are all kinds of dilemmas in life. And some people abandon faith. They get their hands burned, and they say, well, okay, I'm never, I'm never doing that again. If you prophesy, prophesy in proportion to faith. And you begin to do it, maybe you get something wrong, you think, well, I'm not going there again. And people back off. They don't press on in faith. So things stop growing because we don't produce faith. We've got to learn to believe God. We've got to believe, keep going when all the odds are telling you this isn't going to work. And, and especially leadership. We've got to have leadership faith. We've got to have Moses kind of faith, David kind of faith. It says, come on, we're going to go. That rallies the troops. It says, we're on a journey. We're on a mission. Come on, let's go with this. And we've got to say, listen, Lord, I'm buying into this. Corporate faith, individual faith, faith for your children, faith for your husband, faith for your parents, faith for finance, faith for jobs, faith for life. We live by faith. Men in business, we live by faith. Go trust him. Really believe. It's not. Well, I'm not. You know, I can't believe for stuff. I'm just. I'm just. Well, what are you doing? Well, I'm trying to be moral. Was God pleased with that? Not surely. No. Without faith, you can't please him. He's not looking for morality. He's looking for faith. He's looking for you to trust him. He knows what he's saying. He he can be trusted. And so Paul's got this wonderful goal: the goal of our instruction, faith to stand when things are difficult. Faith to go forward when the door looks closed. Faith to bring glory to God. Faith we're going to say, hey, we're going to plant out of church. It takes huge courage. I'm so thrilled with this company. People who've uprooted cross continents said, we're going to plant a church. How do you do that? With faith. You can't do it without faith. But the setbacks, and we thought we were going to get that building, and they didn't give it to us. We thought we were going to, no, that showed, ah. No, no, faith, we keep pressing through. So this is Paul's goal. Paul, we've taken Paul aside. We said, hey, Kay, Paul, tell us, what's the deal? What is the river that runs right through your soul? What keeps you going? And Paul says, this is my goal. If you want it just consolidated, this is my goal, Love. Come on, Paul. No, no. This is it. Love. Without it, it's nothing. Oh, we've got loads. We've hired and fired. Love. I'm looking for a community that is in contrast to a society that gives up on people, walks away from them, doesn't work anything through. I want a community that's different to that. A community of people that just know God loves them. They're overwhelmed with God's grace. They just staggered at it. The worship erupts, not because we beat it out of people, because, wow, God, you're so good. Loving God, loving one another, loving the lost, loving those who treat you badly. From a pure heart, a good conscience. We're learning to obey. We're learning to get our conscience cleansed. We're walking in light. 
and a faith that keeps on growing for God's glory. God is being believed. When God breaks up with the new heavens and the new earth, there'll be no doubt. God speaks and that's it. We've got to grow in faith. Faith grows. The Bible talks about little faith. Abraham grew in faith. We can grow in faith. God can build our faith. But we want to be on, say, I'm, I'm here for being grown. I don't want to back off. Don't back off. Don't say, when I tried that, it didn't work for me. I don't want to go there. Let's believe God to expand faith. To glorify his great name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity just to eavesdrop on Paul. What made his heart be focused. We thank you. You've let us see his goal. We, We see also his method, which was to instruct and Father, I pray let these few, uh, this hour of instruction, please, Father, let it do us good. Yeah. Please, Father, let it go on to produce the goal more and more yeah. in churches across this great nation. Yes. Lord, we're st- I'm still moved, Lord, thinking about those, that list of names that David brought to us, the heritage of this nation. Yes. I'm still moved by it, Lord. Yeah. And Father, we do long for you to do something that's so worthy of your great name. Something that produces great heroes and heroines. Something that, Lord, speaks of your majesty. And communities, Lord, that provide God's alternative to a, Lord, a society that is so tragically losing its way. Lord, talks about love, but no idea what it is. Following whims and fancies, leaving devastation. Oh, Father, that we might produce a community of chesed love, covenant love, steadfast love, tender mercies. Lord, build it into us, Father. Expand our faith. I pray for terrific faith. I pray as the guys here plan for the future and ponder next steps, church plants, buildings to be obtained, all sorts of stuff. Lord, let faith keep growing. Let us press forward into everything you have for us, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.